Well, do me a favor and uh, turn with me to the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. Okay, now, folks, we're going to start getting into the events. The events. Uh, Jesus here uh, stopped and talked, to, talked about the people before he talked about the events. And we've been talking about that over the last uh, several uh, weeks. If you don't know anything or remember anything from tonight, you should start right here. That's this. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 19, you should memorize this. Just memorize this. Because when you're done with this study, done with this study, I guarantee it, guarantee, you are going to be you are going to have a framework for revelation that's going to be easy for you to explain. See, here's my goal. Not only do I want you to be able to know the book of Revelation inside and out and to know it in here and have the Lord do something here with it, but I want you to be able to tell other people about the book of Revelation. And see, here's where you start right here. Chapter 1, verse 19. It says this if I can get there. Write the things, Jesus says this to John, write the things which you have seen. John, in fact, did that in chapter 1. And what did he see? He saw the glorified, resurrected Jesus Christ. And it's powerful and beautiful. Then, this outline, this divine outline, tells uh, Jesus tells John, and then write the things which are. And over the last couple weeks, we have gone through Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, uh, which falls under that subheading of the outline. What is he doing? He's writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is Turkey. And it's interesting, those churches aren't the famous churches, except for Ephesus, in other words, uh, like Colossae or Galatia, God knew, Jesus knew, which churches he needed to write to to get his points across. Of course, those churches needed help themselves back at the time that he was writing, around 96 AD. Those churches need a ser needed a sermon or a word from Jesus. And so you see John, writing to these seven churches, telling them, giving them a commendation, telling them the things that are lacking or, or whatever, and we went through that at length. And then, of course, those uh, lessons can apply to us in this church and the church at large now, right? They can apply personally to you. I had a couple people uh, text me or send me an email this week and said, I don't want to be lukewarm. <laughs> Neither do I. So, so it can, it can uh, impact you personally. And then we talked about how many people believe these seven churches uh, signify or represent the seven periods of church history from the apostolic age until now. And notice, folks, that we end with the church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Oh, my, does that describe American Christianity? And that's where we are. And it says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are. That's to the seven churches, the church history. That represents church history, chapters 2, chapter 3. And then you need to know this. If you don't get anything out of this sermon but this, 
This will knock your socks off. This will help you understand and to be able to explain, and that's this. And then write the things which will take place after this. If you're a writer in your Bible, circle that take place after this. It's a Greek phrase, after this, meta tauta. Why am I telling you that? (laughs) Because it says after this. He's to write now the things that happen after this. After what? Flip with me to chapter 4, verse 1. And then I'm going to pray. Look at this. Look at this. Is this amazing? Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things. Guess what the phrase is? Meta tauta. In other words, the divine outline is proceeding just as Jesus outlined it. And chapter 4, through 19 and the middle of 19, talk about what's going to happen on the earth after, listen, the church age, chapters 2 and 3. We're now going to embark over, in the next several weeks, 4 through 19, what happens on the church age. Oh, by the way, uh, you guys are Bereans, because I made a big mistake last week, and I was corrected by some young man in here, and I'm glad I was. In my excitement to tell you about the word, Jesus, I got it backwards. See, Jesus is called the word in Revelation chapter 19. But on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I flipped that last week, so flip it back in your mind. But anyway, chapter 4 through 19 is what's going to take place after the church age. Get me? And then Jesus is going to come back in the middle of chapter 19. He's going to come back to the earth with his saints. If If you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you're going to come back with him. Amen is right. And then chapter 20 is the millennial kingdom, 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. And then chapter 21 and 22 is when this earth fades away and the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem come down. And that's where you'll live forever. I just gave you the whole outline of the book of Revelation. So now what you can say to people is this. Listen, I have heard it over the last year. Revelation is so hard to understand. (laughs) I just gave it to you in 30 seconds. And you can do it too. That's what I'm saying. You will do this. You are going to do this after these things. By the way, folks, the last word of chapter 1, after this, is the same word or the same phrase. Meta tauta. Meta tauta. All right? So let me pray. I'm going to pray for Lebanon. I'm going to pray for our time tonight, and then we're going to continue on in chapter 4. Lord, thank you so much that you've given us this divine outline to the Apostle John. We're thankful for that. And Lord, uh, we're thankful that we can come and we can uh, read your word and understand it by the person and work of the Holy Spirit as he moves in our lives and gives us truth and directs us into all truth. So, Lord, help us tonight, would you, um, as we um, move about in in your scriptures and then do your mighty work in our hearts so that we could go out and tell a hurting and dying world. Lord, give us a burden for the souls of men and women, boys and girls, until you come back for us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, and Lord, help the people in Lebanon and those who are hurting today. Lord, help there be answers and justice. And Lord, I pray for our friends with heart for Lebanon and pray you'd give them stamina and strength and resource to minister to the many who are displaced and hurting. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're, uh, remember when we began this, I talked to you about several different ways in which to interpret the book of Revelation. I told you about a preterist view and a historical view. You remember that? And then I talked to you about a, a futurist perspective on the book of Revelation, of which you find yourself in a church that adheres to the futurist perspective. If you're a preterist or a historical interpreter of the book of uh, 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 Revelation, then you get to chapter 4 and 5, and you treat that sort of as an interlude, an intermission, kind of, in the book of Revelation. That's what uh, you do. That's what they think. But this uh, is a, uh, an interlude before this appearance of this first rider, this rider on a white horse that comes in chapter 6, which to that interpretation is uh, the introduction then of the Romans as they move into the area in around 67 AD and then go and wipe out Jerusalem there in 70 AD. Now, we don't adhere to that. Here's why I'm telling you this. See, if you're under a futurist perspective, of which we are and convinced as we read the scriptures and uh, move through it, we think it has the best explanation of uh, what's happening here in Revelation and, quite frankly, uh, through the rest of the scriptures. Okay? So we believe in a futuristic interpretation. And here, what I want you to see is after these things, John says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Now, don't fade out. Every word here is pregnant with meaning. I understand. I, I got to tell you, this is hard, man. <laughs> I, I, this is just a rabbit trail. This is difficult. I get it. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy for me, although it, it's easier than topical, I'll tell you that much. Uh, but it's not easy for you. I understand it. You're here and you're studying all the scriptures, not just some of it. But see, the Bible tells us and tells you that you and I, we as Christians, are responsible to know the entire counsel of God. And if it was up to me, maybe, I would avoid things like sexual sins or uh, uh, some, some other, uh, you know, socially or politically correct things. Or maybe even giving. I might even avoid giving or uh, the things that are kind of hard to say or for unforgiveness in a person's life or gossip maybe. Or, but see, when you're in this position and you're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you cover all the scriptures. And now here we come to a book that many churches never teach. I'm convinced one of the reasons many churches never teach this is because they have no framework within which to teach it. They believe that it's so difficult to understand, which I'm hopefully going to show you is not the case, 
and that it's too controversial because you have people within your own camp, your own camp, who believe in a, a, a millennial kingdom maybe, but then they don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. No, they believe in the mid-trip or the post-trip, and people get in arguments and fights about this sort of thing. And, and then you have another camp that believe that, you know, the church has replaced Israel, and that can get ugly between Christians and all that sort of thing, see? But, but so, so, so I believe that lots of churches avoid this topic on purpose, folks. So why I'm going down this rabbit trail is I understand this is difficult. But you stick uh, with it here. Hang in here. Because every word here is pregnant with meaning, and I want you to know it. I want you to go out into the highways and byways in life and be able to explain this to people. Not bring them to me. I mean, I'm happy to talk to them, but I want you to do it. And I think the Lord does too. So let's dig in after these things, he says. After these things. After what things? The church age. There's the divine outline. Chapter 1, chapter 2 and 3. And now, after these things, the church age. After these things, I looked and behold a door. Listen, back in uh, the church to Philadelphia, back in chapter 3. Go over... To chapter 8. Jesus had said, chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 8. Did I not say it? I'm bad at that. Revelation 3, verse 8, the church of Philadelphia. You're supposed to memorize that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have, a little, you have a little strength, have kept my word, and not deny my name. Jesus is commending them for trusting in him fully. And he says there's an open door now. There's an open door. And he actually goes on. And later in the, this chapter, it's so famous, you all know it. He says, um, you know, I stand at the door and knock, verse 20. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, look, look, he says, I'm knocking, folks. He's talking now to the church in Laodicea, and he's saying, I know you're lukewarm. I, I understand it, but, but you have a chance, he's saying, and I'm knocking still. I'm knocking, lukewarm church, and, 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 and the, door is, uh, the doorknob's on your side of the, the door. You just need to open it up. I, if you'll open it up, if anyone hears my vo voice, opens the door, I will come in, and I'll dine with them, and that's the word used for that long meal in which he lingers long with people for fellowship. Isn't that beautiful? He says he'll do it. And now, you, here, John says, after these things, he's writing, I looked, and behold, there was the door. <laughs> and it's open. <laughs> and, and you know this. Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am, boy, even I can memorize this one. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I mean, rest and food and nourishment. He's the door. We come in to heaven through Jesus. Listen to what he hears. And the, verse, the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. Now that should just go bing and just elicit something in your mind. You know what it should elicit? It should elicit 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And 
uh, in verses 13 through 18. Listen to this. How about this one? I mean, is this amazing? The Bible actually says this. He, uh, Paul writes this. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers or sisters. I, I don't want you to be, he's not making a, a statement of, uh, you know, um, uh, he's teasing someone or putting somebody down. He says, I don't want you to be in the dark about something. I don't want you to be ignorant. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, fallen asleep, what's that a picture of? Or what's that a way, that's a way of saying people who have died. Because people were dying during this time and they were going, wait a minute, if people are dying, you still haven't come back, Jesus still hasn't come back, what happens to the people who are dead? That's what they were asking, right? So I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow. <laughs> lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. In other words, this doctrine that we're talking about tonight gives you all the hope in the world. Every bit of hope that you need is found right here by the door, the person and work of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to be ignorant uh, of concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Notice that, by the word of the Lord. Write this down, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and here it comes, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, those who were asleep, the dead ones, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, we're still alive, shall be caught up together with them. Notice this, folks. I want you to see something. I don't believe necessarily that chapter 4 and 5 alludes directly to the, the rapture. But it's telling you, as the rapture has occurred after the church age, that this is what the people will be doing who were caught up in heaven. Did you, did you understand what I just said? Did you get what I was meaning there? The reference to the rapture is in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. You're going to be, 1 Corinthians 15 says, along with what I just read you, you'll be changed in a twinkling of an eye. And people have said that a twinkling of an eye is a shorter period of time than the blinking of an eye. Like that, you're going to be changed. First Thessalonians 4, And the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them and the cloud, and, uh, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, that's, you, you want to circle that. You want to underline that. You understand there's something that's going to happen in Revelation chapter 19. Jesus is going to come back with his bride, that's his second coming. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 is describing something else. Jesus is coming in the clouds to catch up his bride. Why am I saying catch up? Oh, well, catch up, I didn't mean that, but you know what I mean. 
uh, in the clouds to me, and, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, listen, listen to this, folks. If there's people out here who are nervous about the book of Revelation, I want you to take this in and internalize this. Comfort one another with these words. That's scripture. Comfort one another with these words. See, these doctrines... Uh, the, the, uh, the end time doctrines, 1 John 3 tells us, are purifying. They help us to live in a certain way. They, they give us comfort and stability and strength. They're not to worry us. How could we be worried? We're in Christ. What could man ever do to us? What could sickness ever do to us? If we die here, we go to be with the Lord. What's better? Yes, we want to be careful and healthy and eat right and do the right things here and, and, and give our lives fully unto the Lord while we're here. But if we die, we're with the Lord. And here, listen, in 1 Thessalonians 4, I want you to notice something. People that are critics of the rapture are going to say, well, rapture is never in the Bible. Well, neither is Trinity. But it's taught. But rapture is in the Bible. You just don't be a real smart aleck like me and say, what do you mean it's not in the Bible? I say, well, the, book rap, the, the word rapture is never in the Bible. You say, well, what kind of Bible are you using? And they say, well, I use the NSB. You go, is it English? You go, yeah. Well, you go, that's your problem. You're not using the Latin Bible. Because if you were using the Latin Bible, you'd know that this caught up right here is the word raptus. So what Bible are you using? Just kind of being cheeky there, right? But here's the phrase from which people get the word rapture caught up. And that word means uh, like an amputation, like the guillotine. Boom! It happens like that. that. That's what the word means. Boom! It happens quickly. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 51 and 52, just so you'll know it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Not all of us are going to die. I don't know about in here, but you understand what I'm saying. There are going to be some Christians left on the earth, and they're not going to die. They're going to be caught up in the air after the dead in, ri- uh, dead in Christ rise first. Get it? We read the other scripture. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When? At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. Who here wants to get a glorified, resurrected body? Me. We do, right? Of course we do. Okay. After these things, I looked, and behold, the door, the door. Jesus Christ is the one that moves us into heaven. God sent his son to reconcile men back to him by his blood and uh, uh, resurrection. And the first voice which he heard was like a trumpet. Now, we just explored that. A trumpet speaking with me, saying, look, come up here. I wonder, this is, listen, don't write this down. (laughs) I just wonder when the rapture happens, are we going to hear that? Come up here. Or louder than that, a trumpet's loud, right? You ever had a trumpet player for a friend or a roommate? Woo, it's like, wow, relax. Here it's going to be loud, and uh, uh, you're going to, uh, he's going to say, come up here, and then listen, I will show you things which must take place. There it is again, meta tauta. After this, I'm going to show you these things after this. And immediately I was in the spirit, 
Now, there's two theories of what this means. Does this mean like Paul, and I think it's 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul went into the third heavens? Maybe. Maybe. You know what I'm talking about? What Paul said, I couldn't even, words inexpressible. I couldn't even tell you what it was like up there. The heaven. He went into the third heaven, which is the thing that we think of as heaven, right? There's space and the first heaven, the second heaven, and then there's heaven, the third heaven. Paul went there. Some people believe this means, and he was immediately in the spirit, he went right up to that third heaven. That could be. Other people believe this means, uh, because that word shouldn't be capitalized, it means that for the church, the bride of Christ, us, when we are in heaven, because chapter 4 and chapter 5 are a picture of us in heaven during the seven-year period of tribulation. Why? Okay. Here, think about this. Who is Jesus coming in the clouds for? His bride. You're his bride if you're in Christ. What was the um, uh, ancient uh, Jewish, and even do it now uh, to some degree, Jewish marriage ceremony like? Remember, there was the first part where dad went over to dad and said, okay, I, I think you got enough money. Let's make an arrangement. Sounds good. Let's make an arrangement. And that was where they, it, it was going to happen now. The arrangement's been set. And then, then another thing happened where they made a betrothal. That was Mary and Joseph, right? The, now it's a done deal. It's a done deal. You're getting married. It's over. You're betrothed. And that period was, you know, oftentimes a year or something like that. And then the, 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 the marriage would happen. What, what would happen in the period of betrothal? The son would go home and build a room onto his father's house. Now do you understand why John 14 says what it says? I go to prepare a place for you. And when I come, remember? That's speaking in Jewish terms. Well, they would go and they would build this house and then, you know, they would be, I, I would be there forever. We'd never get married if I had to build something. But anyway, we'd, we'd build, I'd have to bring Xander with me and then... <clears throat> but anyway, we would build and we, they would build and they would build and the father would examine and look and make sure it was right and then, see, guess what would happen for that whole year back with the uh, bride? She didn't know when he was coming back to get her. And so she would have to have her bridegrooms on the ready, right? And then at some point, the dad would say, looking good, son. You can go get married. And then, you know, he would, the, the groom would, you know, fly through the streets, of course, to meet his bride, and then they would go, and then they would go back to the home, and there would be a seven-year period honeymoon. Well, see, this is the picture, in a sense, of the church's or the bride's honeymoon in heaven. Why am I picking and understanding that there's a seven-year period? Well, you'll never understand it unless you know the book of Daniel. That's chapter 9. There's a seven-year period called the time of Jacob's trouble, or Daniel's 70th week, or as many as you, of you know it as what's called the Great Tribulation or the Tribulation, either one, the Tribulation. And so this is a picture after the church age 
First Thessalonians, the rapture, I believe, has happened. Why else do I believe it's happened? Because the church has been mentioned several times for the first three verses. Guess how many times the church has mentioned the rest of the book? None. <laughs> None. The church is in heaven here, folks. Chapter 4 and chapter 5. And God is showing you what we are doing in heaven. What will we be doing in heaven for that seven-year period while God is pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world? When does he do that? In, in our book here, chapter 6 through 19. There's the outline. You see what you do? You just go right back to the outline. You'll start to understand this stuff. Oh, what else does he do during the period of tribulation? He deals with the Jewish nation, the Jews, right? He's pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, and he's dealing with the nation of Israel. God, folks, we'll get into this more, is not done with the nation of Israel. Don't believe it. Okay, so after this, and immediately I was in the Spirit. Does that mean the third heaven, or does that mean I've now no longer, because we've got our glorified, resurrected body, I'm not carnal. Who here is tired of saying bad stuff to their husband? Who here is saying, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> or who here is saying bad stuff to their coworker? Or who here is tired of that when that gossip comes out and you go, man, ah. Or that thing that you thought in your heart that you know was a sin. You're tired of that, right? See, we're going to get a glorified, resurrected body. And the Bible tells him uh, that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Sanctification. We're not going to become little gods. He's God. But we get a glorified, resurrected body. You get it? Okay, so many people believe that's what it is. I was in the spirit, and behold. Okay. Dr. Donald Barnhouse gives a great example of how John does this. You know what was big in our house? Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve was big in our house. And I'll bet if you asked my family what their favorite day of the year, I bet they'll say Christmas Eve. I bet almost all of them would say that. Maybe not, but we'll see. We'll ask them afterwards. And you know, one of the things, right, that excitement, the tree is lit, and there's no presence under the tree, and you're, you know, having, you know, uh, you know the, the, the snacks, and you're just the anticipation. And when they're little, oh, it's so wonderful. Even now it's so wonderful. It's wonderful now. There's still anticipation. And then, you know, uh, you stay up till 2 or 3 in the morning doing what you do as a parent, and then uh, you hear it. You, you know, you're, you got, oh, you're so tired because you've not been asleep, and it's a heck. And then you hear them come in your room. Can we go downstairs? Can we go downstairs? Oh, we're so excited. And then, and then you know, you go plug in the tree, right? And you try to make it dark in there so that they'll see the tree. Sometimes they get up at before dark or before dawn, so it's already dark. But you know what I mean, right? And then, you know, the two parents go down, the, uh, down there first, although that doesn't always work out. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, then, but then, you ever notice this? Watch, watch. The kids come down the stairs, and then they, they're just fixated on the tree. Oh, my gosh, the glory of the tree, the lights. It's so beautiful. It's Christmas Day. It's so beautiful. It's wonderful. And they're enamored with it. The, and, then, and then, wait a minute, and then the next thing gets their attention. The presents. Oh, my goodness, the presents. And then the kids are over there fawning over the 
presents, right? And then maybe there was some special thing that you put up on the mantle, and then they see the mantle, and they're, whoa, and they all kind of congregate over to the mantle. You know what I'm talking about? Ever happened in your house? Maybe, maybe not. See, that's what's happening for John right here. There's so much to take in. There's so much to take in. And the number one thing that catches his eye as he's been told to come up here and see what it is like when the bride is in heaven is immediately the first thing that catches his eye is the throne of God. It's the throne of God. Look, immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne. Don't jump over this word. I'm telling you, if you're a young person, if you're a person with anxiety or if you worry a lot or if, if, if you feel like you've failed as a Christian a lot, mark this word. You're going to go, what? S-E-T. It says that this throne is implanted planted, solidified. It's there, and it's the main thing, and that's what everything revolves around is that throne, the throne of God. Now, why do I say that, and why do I bring that up to you? It's because of this. It's because of this. You see, Israel's history, or the Bible's history, is this. We've just been doing it for about a year. We've been going through the Old Testament in which there are all of these portable altars. Don't you remember this? There's things called high places, places of worship. They did it up on the uh, hills and the mountains, and then they made artificial mounds or platforms. And then, remember last week I told you about this? Jezebel brought in the prophets from the groves well, those were trees, and they would find different places that were good to worship in and much more. I mean, it was really pretty nasty and dirty, right, and really gross. And they uh, apparently, even in Ezekiel 16, had a portable sanctuary. And they conducted the worship on these high places, and they had even other gods that they mixed in. You know, they at first kind of just said, well, we, we don't really have a place. Why didn't some of them have a place, by the way? Remember, one tribe, I think it was Dan, they were down in the area near Jerusalem, but they couldn't battle and fight out the enemy, so they went all the way up to the north, 80 miles away. And remember, they were required to come back to the temple three times a year and for other things, but they put up their own worship center, portable! You can still go see that actual worship center today right on the border of Lebanon. It's right there. But see, they disobeyed God because they weren't worshiping like God asked them to do. And guess what happened? It spiraled out of control because they didn't worship like God asked them to worship. They had portable centers. It spiraled out of control to the point that in the Kings, it actually tells us that the people of God, the people of God, worship to Molech. They sacrificed their babies on the hot iron arms or brass arms or whatever it was made of, of the statute of Molech, and they killed and sacrificed their babies. That's how bad it got uh, with these portable centers. Now you say, well, what are you talking about? What, you led this off with S-E-T. Listen, listen, folks. Our throne's going nowhere. It's set and solid in heaven God 
in heaven. We can count on him. We know where he is. We understand as much as we can by the Son, Jesus Christ, as he's opened up the uh, throne room to God. Do you realize that? Jesus Christ has opened up the throne room of God. It says, folks, we can actually come boldly now to the throne room of grace. We can go there, and we can go there and call out Abba, Father, by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we can get as much mercy and as much grace as he uh, doles out, and he can dole out forever, right? And the point is, what am I trying to say? See, see, folks, we try everything in the United States. We have all kinds of worship centers. See, maybe one year, or maybe what we'll do is, in, in, in an attempt to fit in, maybe what we'll say is, here's what we'll do. We'll find uh, 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 our temple, our worship center, in the realm of romantic, or, uh, romance. The most important thing in my life is that I get married and have a mate. See, the problem with that is every mate there is, except one, is going to disappoint you sometime. And if you make your mate and your marriage or your relationships the thing that you worship, you're going to be sorely disappointed because what happens when they let you down? Right? And so maybe you get disenchanted with that, and so that didn't work out, and so maybe you go on to another mate or another relationship or whatever, and then it's rotating, and it's never stable, and it's never solid. And God's there, and his throne is set, and it's perfect. So maybe what you do is you go from romance, you go to, well, okay, now I'll find myself in uh, intellectualism or philosophy, and I'll get as educated I can, and we'll change the world through great educational programs and all that. And there's nothing wrong with education, yes, Great, but see, at the end of education, there's no God. And after a while, you're going to get bored and restless with that worship center, that portable one, because that shifts and moves. And so maybe you'll go to something else. You'll say, well, heck with that. I can get a job, you know, at the trade uh, school, and I can make, you know, this amount of money. And what I'll do is I'll just save up my money. And what I'll do, that didn't really work out, so maybe I'll just build my kingdom. I'll build my kingdom, and I'll worship at that center. But the problem is, that'll never fulfill you. Ecclesiastes tells us that and everything else. And so you're running from worship center to altar to high place, and you never can fill what's going on in here except for with one thing, and that's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's set, and he'll never move on you. See, the more you become a Christian, come on, folks, come on. The more you become a Christian, that was dumb. Take that out of the tape. The more you walk with God, the more you walk with God. See, it doesn't get boring. It gets more exciting. It never gets boring. I mean, you get tired sometimes, but not tired of him. You pour yourself out, and you're tired, and you are tired. You're working, and you're doing what the Lord's saying, and it makes you exhausted sometimes, but he's not exhausting. No, he's got all the glories of heaven, and it says that we're to worship him in the beauty of his holiness. He's beautiful, and he's holy, and he's never boring, and he's there, and he's solid, and every morning you can come and get new mercies and be blessed and it never gets tired, and he's bringing you places and people to talk to and to counsel and to love and to share with and to give things to and to help, and it never tires. He, he, he never wears out. It just gets better and better with the Lord. 
because he's set and solid. He was in the spirit. He was a throne set, and the one sat on the throne. See, these are, these are these things that you're in awe of, and he who sat there, oh, this is amazing. We're going to be here a while, man. Al's is in trouble. He might not get there till right at the closing time tonight, but... And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone. Now, in 2111, I think, but it's in chapter 21, it tells us what a sardis is, or excuse me, a jasper is. It says that the jasper in 2111, I think it's 11, but it's in 21, is a clear stone, very, has clarity, which would be more like a diamond, right? And the sardis stone is the blood red stone, just so you know that. The Sardis stone is the blood red throne. And I want you to see that. Here's the one, big capital O, who sat on the throne. And here's John, who's like Christmas morning, but way better, a gazillion times better. He, here he comes right to the throne first. He sees the throne, and then he sees the one who sits on the throne. The one that makes life worth living. The reason that we're alive, to glorify him. And here he is, and he says, I don't even know how to explain it. He, 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 he didn't say this, but that's what's going through his mind, I'm sure. He was like a jasper. You see, the Bible tells us, we've been reading it in 1 John, God is light. He reveals everything. It emanates from him, the Psalms tell us. It emanates from him. Light emanates from him. He's like a jasper. He's, we live in transparency with him. He's transparent, you know, and he's glorious. That speaks of his glory, and it's like a jasper and clear. And then there's this sardis stone, and so you see it, right? The purity of God with the redemption of God. Of course, what do you see in the red of the stone? What do you see in the red of the stone? You see God's redemptive plan. It required a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. You know that, right? You know that. Well, this is something else that's pretty interesting. In Exodus 28, (laughs) you need to know this. In Exodus 28, do you know that the priests, do you remember this? Do you remember that the priests had to wear a breastplate ultimately? And guess what the breastplate included? I guess it would be four rows of three uh, stones each. Got it? Four rows of three stones each, or maybe it was three, three rows of four, but whatever. You can find it in Exodus 28 and 17. Guess what the first stone, oh, what did they represent on their breastplate? The tribes of Israel. Remember that? That's what they represented, the tribes of Israel. Guess what the first stone was. It was a Sardis. It was a blood red one. Guess who the first guess, guess who the first son of Israel is? Somebody tell me. Reuben, good man. Guess what Reuben means? Behold my son. Uh, guess what the last stone is on the breastplate? It's a jasper, the clear stone. Who's the last son of, huh? Benjamin. Guess what Benjamin means? My son at my right hand. The son at my right hand. You getting that? The people of God were surrounded 
by God's love and protection and glory and mercy and grace and his redemptive plan. And listen to this, folks. He's like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And he, look at this, wants his people close to him. Why do you think we're in heaven in chapter 4? Do you get it? You catching that? He sat there. He was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. Catch that? He keeps his people close. And the Bible says to us, right? The Bible says to us in several places, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God did not appoint us unto wrath. Folks, what happens in chapter 6 through 19? The wrath of God is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's told to us in Luke 21, to watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Romans 5, 8, and 9. Write these down. You love this verse. I love this verse. I always forget this is at the end. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Why am I telling you that? Because God wants to keep you close. He brings his bride up into heaven. He, he is light. He is clarity. He is blood red in appearance. There was this thing that he couldn't, you know, he's focusing on these things. Like kids on Christmas morning seeing something way, way better. And he comes and he sees this throne and he sees the one on the throne. And he, he's hard for him to describe the clarity, the beauty, the glory of light. And the beauty and glory of this blood red stone. And then there was a rainbow around the throne. And every one of you right now are thinking, where else do I remember the rainbow being in the Bible? Well, you remember it in Genesis 9. Remember this, that Noah found, look, 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 look. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What is this? This is speaking here, although there is this greenness <laughs> and this rainbow color around the throne speaking of all these different things, the clarity of God, the purity of God the, in the jasper and the holiness of God and the glory of God and his redemptive plan through the blood of his son. And then there was this rainbow that speaks of his promises that are always surrounding him and the grace that's there. It's a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. There you go, the greenness. Is that a word? Anyway. Now around the throne were 24 elders. Now there's many views. Folks, there's so many views about who these 24 elders are. Okay? Here's who I think they are. You could go back. I think it tells you in the 21st chapter of uh, Revelation. Go there. See, when the new Jerusalem comes in, in verse 12, New Jerusalem, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates, and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. 
It's the gate, 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 gate. Now look down in verse 14. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. So in 12 gates, we see the 12 people of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. But what about uh, the uh, foundations that are 12 of them? On them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So what do you have here? Now there's several views about who these people are. I think they're who, who these people are are the church, the people of God, both the ones who were believing saints in the Old Testament and the ones who are the believing saints in the New Testament, apostles, and the 12 tribes, you see? And these people, why do I think that? Well, here's why. They were clothed in white robes. What do we know on this side? Well, we know it from the whole Bible, but especially now, what do we know? We aren't going to heaven unless we got the right clothes on. And we must be clothed in robes of righteousness, the white robes of righteousness. In order to get into the feast, we got to have the right clothes on. we got to put off the old man, put on the new, the clothes, the robes of righteousness, which speaks of God's righteousness, or Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. Look at this. Memorize this verse. You ready? Go to 1 Corinthians 1.30. I forgot to say this. This was the punchline on the sermon on Sunday. Here's the punchline. This is the best. This is so good. Memorize this verse. Memorize it. We don't do, we don't do some Susie Orman, Tony Robbins paradigm thing where we live a certain way in the Christian life. No, listen, we have a real relationship with a living, risen Christ. You get it? And look, in 1 Corinthians 1, I didn't tell you, verse 30. Folks, if you're found in Christ Jesus, see, this is something you'd jump up and down about. This is better than even the pirates getting their third win. Here it is. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us, look at this, Jesus became for us. You don't think you have enough wisdom? Who's, what's the answer? Jesus. I don't do the right things all the time. Hmm. Jesus is my righteousness. Not a program, not a paradigm. The person of Jesus Christ, he's my wisdom. It's from God. He's righteousness and he's sanctification and he's redemption. You need his righteousness, folks, and it's only found when you're in Christ Jesus. You get it? So when you come back here, these people, the 24 elders, are sitting. That's the, the people of God, the church, the Old Testament saints who were believing saints and the New Testament ones. It's the bride of Christ sitting clothed in white robes. And they had the, uh, the crowns. These are the crowns of victory, not rule. They were victorious, but the only reason they were victorious is because they were found in Jesus and they're there, and they have the white robes, and they have these crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, and voices. And voices. Listen, these are the same description when Moses went up on the mount and the people were scared. Remember that? But also, if you went to Revelation chapter 8, verse 5, Revelation 11, verse 19, and Revelation 16, 18, it talks about this same, very similar description of when God's pouring out his judgment. That there's going to be lightnings and thunderings and voices. Those are the same descriptors. What he's saying here is, this is the time before the judgment happens. You see that? Okay. 
So now here, what else? Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Two views here. Here's the view I think. I think this is the perfect or this is the work of perfection of the Holy Spirit. You can go in Isaiah 11, verse 2. It'll tell you about the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. I think that's what that speaks of. But there's another good point. I wouldn't be dogmatic about it. Seven angels. Look at this. In verse, or chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. You can see it again in 17 verse 1 and other places. Apparently, there were these seven angels that were charged with executing the judgments. And so some people believe that's them. I believe this is the, the uh, picture of the Spirit, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit here. You be a Berean and search that and think about that. Okay, now listen. In verse 6, before the throne, there was a sea of glass. That's really interesting. In the Old English, in 1 Kings 7, do you know this? If you don't know this, you should know this. You should go and memorize this. In the tabernacle, there was a tent, a fence, excuse me. You know this? There was a fence in the tabernacle. All the way around, there was only one way in, the front door. No other way. It speaks of Jesus. And the next thing that you would encounter when you went in there was an altar where the sacrifices were cut and the blood dripped out and that sort of thing, right? Then the next thing after that was a laver. It's actually called in one place in the Old English a molten sea, but really it's a laver. It's a wash place for the priests to wash themselves. And it's really interesting because Moses took like mirror-like substances, and put it in the bottom of the laver so when the priests would go down in there and wash themselves, they could see what they looked like. In other words, the law of God reflects who you are and the water of the word washes you, right? After the blood of Christ, that's the altar, see it? And then after that was the actual tent itself. It had two, two rooms. The first room was the uh, you would walk in, uh, and on the left side would be, remember, the seven candelabras. On the right side would be the showbread. At the back would be the uh, 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 incense, the prayer of the saints. And then in the back room was the Holy of Holies. And what was in there? The Ark of the Covenant. And what was on the top? I'm, I'm getting to a point, hopefully. What was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant? A cherubim. And their wings almost touched. And the high priest, what would he do one time a year? He would go and he would sprinkle blood on top of the mercy seat. That's the mercy seat's the thing on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And God said to Moses, do you remember what he said to Moses? How sweet is this? I'll meet you above the mercy seat. Because the blood. And there were cherubim. Okay, that's an important point. And the reason is... Uh, sea of glass, many people believe, represents that molten laver, that molten sea, or that molten laver. Some people believe that speaks of God's word that surrounded the throne. Or uh, some people uh, believe uh, that speaks of uh, antiquity in which a king would make a a marbled uh, area before his throne. He'd sit down, and this place right here would be marbled, marbled, 
marbled and polished. And it was really, you know, beautiful. And you couldn't just come on that. You couldn't walk across it. If you did, you'd get killed. He'd, he'd, he'd annihilate you if he didn't tell you to come up. What many people believe this speaks of is now you have access to God. You see that? Because he's allowed you to come up by the blood of the lamb. Get it? Some people believe that. And also other people believe that this is, just speaks of peacefulness and tranquility right in front of the throne of God. You know you love the sea of glass because you like to water ski when there's no waves. I know it. But anyway, and you like to look at the ocean and all that sort of thing and in the, in the, in, in all of that. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne, here we go again, four living creatures. Four living creatures. Who, who are these people? Who, what are these things? Well, it's an unfortunate translation. In the Greek, it's beasts. But if you read, there were, there were these four, and there was one like a lion, the second like a calf, the third like a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And are you freaking out right now? You're going, what is going on? And apparently, John just saw them one way, and the reason I'm saying that is because if you went to Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, if you went to Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, you'd see these same beasts, or what I think are angels. And actually, each one of these beasts, or angels, had four faces. And on each one of the beasts, or angels, they had each a face like a lion, like a calf, like a man like a flying eagle. So what's this talking about? Well, real quick, I know. You're saying, well, I'm not sure it can be real quick. But anyway, well, many people believe this, uh, that those beasts, those angels, speak of the Gospels. If you look at it, think about this. The first living creature was like a lion. Like a lion, right? A lion of the tribe uh, of Judah, and the second living creature like a calf. So here, here's what you have, the lion, the king. Matthew speaks of the kingdomship of Jesus Christ. The second living creature was like a calf or an ox. That speaks of servanthood, Mark. That's what Mark's uh, gospel is all about. The third living thing had a face like a man, Dr. Luke. He wrote about his Humanity. The uh, fourth living thing was like an eagle. That speaks of Christ's deity. These are the uh, different gospels. Maybe, maybe not. And so uh, many people believe that this is the characteristics of of God that are hanging around uh, the throne. But I personally believe that what these things are are there. There are. uh, they are actual uh, cherubim. They're cherubim. Where do you first see cherubim in the Bible? A special sect of angels. Where do you first see them in the Bible? Well, when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, remember the tree of life, if they went back and ate of it, they'd perpetually be in a state of sin. So what did God do? He set some cherubim there with, remember the flaming uh, swords or whatever that went back and forth that kept them from them. That's the first place that you see them. Well, uh, angels are mentioned, though, uh, several times in Revelation, 12 times in Ezekiel 1 and 10. Just go read it. It's stunning. They're exactly the same. And so uh, I believe uh, these are these angels that are around the throne. Here's another thing I want you to consider, though. I want you to consider this. It's kind of a different way of thinking, but hold with me for a minute, because I think this will mean something to you. Do you know in Numbers 2, 
God told Moses and the children of God to camp around Numbers 2. Who's got numbers in the school of ministry? Here we go. All right. Uh, uh, numbers 2. He, God told uh, Mo, uh, Moses and the children of God to camp around the tabernacle. Did you know that? He told them to camp around the tabernacle. And he told them to do it in a very specific manner. Listen to this. Uh, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon, who had 186,000 people, were to be to the east. By the way, that's the most amount of people. Judah's standard or banner, according to Jewish tradition, it's mentioned in the second chapter of uh, um, uh, Numbers, that each family had a banner. And according to Jewish tradition, guess what Judah's banner was? It was a lion. Okay, the next people, uh, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, they're to park themselves to the west. There's 108,000 of them. Then Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Oh, their, their uh, banner, could you believe this, is an ox, according to Jewish tradition. Uh, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, they're to park themselves to the south. And there's, uh, their banner had a man on it. And then to the west, uh, oh, by the way, uh, I didn't tell you the numbers, but I'm going to screw this up, so I'll just go through. To the west was Dan, Naphtali, and Asher, and their banner was an eagle. <laughs> you catching this? I don't know if you noticed that, but if you're looking, I never get east and west right. But this, going this way, so if you'd look down at the people encamped around the tabernacle, what you would see would be a cross. Did you hear what I said? Uh, Because here's why it's so amazing, and here's why it applies to you. Do you know in Numbers 23 and 24, I brought this story up to you last week. You you need to know this story. If you're a Bible student, you really need to know this story because it happened, it it recurs all throughout the Bible. And that's this. Hang in with me. Hang in with me. I'm going to tell you, you're going to love this. In Numbers 23 and 24, there's this prophet that uh, the king of Moab brings up to a high hill and says, uh, I want you to curse uh, those the Israelites down there. And, you know, before he gets called over there, uh, the prophet Balaam goes to God and God says, hey, you can't go there and curse the people of Israel. You know, we think it's mean what he's saying, like there's this tension between them. I think it might be something different. I'll tell you here in a minute. He asks him three times, remember? And then he, then he eventually just says, okay, go, but you can't curse them. So he gets up there and he tries to curse them and he can't, nothing but blessing will come out. Is it, is, do you remember this story? Who remembers this story? Is it a weird story to you? Folks, I want you to catch something. In the economy of God, look at this. When you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, the accuser of the brethren can make all kinds of threats and accusations, but you're covered by the blood, and you're only, listen to this, you have mercy and grace. God wants to bless you. Get over Santa Claus mentality. I do good stuff. I get good stuff. I do something bad, I get bad. 
Well, yes, you do reap what you sow. Of course you reap what you sow. Of course. But I got news for you, and I got news for me. Your relationship with God isn't dependent upon you. I mean, yes, it is. You must receive what the Lord has offered as a free gift, but he's done all the work. You're covered by the blood. Now, why am I telling you that? (laughs) Because you have these four living creatures who are, I believe, real creatures, cherubim, angels. But catch it, folks. We read it in 1 Peter. What do angels do? They peer over heaven looking for salvation. And here they are, and they're seeing the byproduct, the product of all the things that God has done through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, and they're sitting there with them. Us! By the blood! And what do you think they do? They're like, man, this is unbelievable. We've been looking for this. The whole time, the four living creatures with six wings full of eyes, they were just so focused on the Lord and within, and they don't rest day or night. What do they do? They praise the Lord. Are you catching it? These people, or these cherubim are peering over heaven right now, right now. They're looking, they're like, wow, where's salvation on the earth? This is so amazing. Now we see the, uh, uh, the uh, bride in heaven, and here is the church sitting right there with them around the throne of God. And they're like, we only got one thing to do, and that's to praise the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. The Trinity emphasized three times, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What happens in heaven? We praise. See, because whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders then fell down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who live forever and ever. (laughs) You see it? It's really weird. You know what's amazing about Christians? They want the sermon, and I'm glad they do. That's a joke, but I'm so glad you do. But listen... What should we be doing as we're preparing our hearts to go to church? To pour out to the Lord. Yes, we have problems. Yes, we have things that need addressed. Yes, he tells us to ask for our needs. But I'm telling you, the right and wonderful and healthy place to be is when we're pouring out our heart in praise. And here they do it. Listen, they do it. And then they cast their crowns before the throne. What is this all about? Real quick, five crowns in the Bible at least. Do you know this? I don't ever, every one of you better get this. If if we get up there and you don't have this crown or I don't have this crown, knock me down or trip me or something. We all ought to have this crown. In uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, it tells us that we ought to be waiting and loving and can't wait for his glorious appearance. We can't wait for him to come back. See, folks, that's why these words, yes, these words are comforting. And it says in 1 John 3, remember, that's a purifying doctrine. We'll live our lives a right way. Well, what else uh, does he say we get crowns for? Uh, Those who love him. Oh, man. Not love about him, know all the facts, 
I know everything. You don't know anything. It's good to know the facts, but it's better to walk with him and to talk with him, just to love him, and that's in James 1.12. What else? One for serving, a crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4. Oh, the crown of serving and loving with a pure heart, and then a martyr's crown. You'd lay down your lives, Revelation 2, verse 10. I do think that means people who get murdered for their faith, but I also think it might mean something else. I think it's laying down your rights. When you have the right to do X, Y, or Z, but you lay down your rights for the greater good of the gospel. See, I don't care. Listen, listen to me. Folks out there in Facebook land, here it comes. I don't care about a mask. If you told me to dress up in a bunny suit, I'm not kidding you, I'd do it here. I get it. I understand. Pressure from government. I know the issues. Trust me. I've been reading about them for six months. Government, shutdown, religion, blah, 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 mass, does it work? I don't care right now. Here's what I care about, is that during this time, people get the gospel. I'll do anything. I'd even wear a Michigan shirt if you made me. Maybe not that one. Maybe not that one. And see, here's the deal. What's so beautiful about crowns, people get wiggly about crowns. They go, well, crowns, am I competing? Am I competing against Brad? Is Brad competing against me? I mean, what's the deal there? No, see, you're not competing because those crowns aren't for you. Ultimately, when you get there to be with the Lord, see, you recognize and I recognize it's all you, isn't it, Lord? Even anything that I did that anybody could consider good, it was all because of you. Here, I'll give them back to you. You cast your crowns before the throne saying, here's what you'll be saying. You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and powerful. Anything good in my life is because of you. We must, let me read this, for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. We must get to that place as a church, as a family, as a family of people, as believers, that we have been saved by him. We don't, I mean, we, we get into this danger real quick. Oh my gosh, I mean, Lord, I was here 50 weeks this year. <laughs> I mean, I bet you can't do without me. I I read my Bible for two years straight every morning, Lord. I'm doing so great. You see, the point is, he's so great. That's the only reason we'd read for two years. The only reason you'd be here for 50 straight weeks is because he's so great, not because I'm so great. But see, that's the beauty. When we live like that, he exhorts us and builds us up and brings us up in the right and healthy way, and I'm praying that we would be a church like that. Okay, here we go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this evening. It's been long, I know. But Lord, these things are so important. I want these people to know this. We want these people to know this. We want to know this together as a family, as a body of believers, so that We can explain these things to others right now who are hurting and struggling. 
and there are tons of them, who are scared, who don't know what's going on. After these things, as we're caught up in the air to be with you in heaven, Lord, thank you for this picture of what we'll be doing. We'll be around the throne with the ones who peer over heaven looking for salvation, and we'll be praising you because you're so prominent and big and glorious, and we always want to give you praise and honor. Help us, Lord. We need your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Hanging in there. You guys are a blessing. And if there's anything we could pray about for, uh, come up after. And you're tired because I went over. I can see. But uh, okay. Uh, God bless you guys.